here we are. Here we are. And science in between. Science in between. And I'm Ollie. And I'm Scott. And this, my friends, is episode 20. 20. Yeah, 20. Look at that. And uh, after this episode, we're going to need, I, you know, this is two hands from me, two hands from you. That's yep. I cast up to 20 right there. And There it is. There it is. Got to take our shoes off after this episode. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a good and thing we, we're we not doing like video versions of these podcasts. No, no one wants we, to see that. We have faces made for radio. We do, in fact. But we are kicking some mad beard game right now, yeah. two of us, you yeah. know. I don't think mine's ever going to be quite as Santa Clausy as yours. I think mine's this. I think this is about as big as mine's getting. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'm you know, it's the holiday season, or the you know, right after the holiday season when this drops. But you know, right. there you go. It's, it's the most glorious time of beard year. It is. It is. And so, uh, after taking you know a week off to talk about uh, the new year, which was episode nineteen, uh, we're jumping back into uh, science in the city. Yep. Uh, which are, is our in-between book club. And so I'm hopefully, hoping you're joining us in this, this journey, this book club journey. And this week we're talking about chapter four. And Good old chapter four, which is called More Than an Apple That Day, A Simple Matter of Learning. Yeah, wow. Is. Could you read more to us, Uncle Scott? Sure. <laughs> Hi, Ollie. Thanks for coming by. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So just to do, uh, to do the full justice, right? So it's Science in the City, Culturally Relevant STEM Education by Stanford's own Brian A. Brown, who is, we'd like to think of as a friend of the show. I don't know if he actually is or not, but. Well, you've we actually. As a friend of the show. I, we've both met we've both met him you've like probably yeah. you're like friends with him i yeah i, I mean, met him I'm, I'm, I'm over to his house all the time it's right it's like i met him once in in new orleans at yeah. mother's i met him at mother's in new orleans and uh i was having lunch with you and yeah. uh brian brown he might have joined us or at least came over to the table like yes, to talk I believe to you he came over he came over to the table to say hello and yeah yeah, and I was like totally fanboying. I'm like, that's Brian Brown. That's Brian yeah. Brown. Yeah, he's a, he's a good man and thorough. Yeah, yeah, he is. So chapter four, I think that if you're a science ed nerd like Scott and I, chapter four has everything that a science nerd like us would want. And if um, you're not, if you're not a science ed nerd like us, you should be because. Well, even if you're not, like, there's a lot that you can take away from in this chapter. Because one, there's there's a lot of really good educational theory in this chapter. So we don't want to get all esoteric, but we typically do, do that, right? We do typically. that. Typically do that. That's part Developing of that's, a reputation for you know, being that's, esoteric. That's that's kind of the running theme here. <laughs> but there's like tons of Vygotsky in this. A lot of social constructivism in this. You know, it digs deep into all of that stuff, which yep. is great. And then he talks about it from an application base, right? So there's mm -hmm. that, which is also awesome. So yep. we have some theory, we have some practice, and then what else would you want in the chapter? How about some data. research? Let's throw some research in there. Some and data. And the cool thing is if, you know, if you're like going, okay, well, this, this book, how is it related to this in-between world we're in? I think this chapter, chapter four, because of the research he presents, shows the, the critical nature of how we communicate online through, you know, digital means and the types of language that we use to, to do that and how we structure experiences for students. And I think that's, that's the best thing about this chapter, especially 
in this in-between world that we work, we're working in. Yeah. And, and interestingly, like I think Brian's current work um, involves like using some VR technology to help people, um, you know, understand their communities better. So, I mean, he's, he's in, he's got a tech flavor to him too, which of course connects with us. So um, yeah. He, and, and this particular study that we're going to talk about that's in this chapter, they used a, um, an online platform for doing the, the experiment. So um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a great, um, it's a great sort of transition and a nice intro to the next half of the book. And it's a, um, it's a nice example of, you know, he's been talking up until now about, uh, about these, you know, how do you talk with kids basically. Right. Um, and, and the, you know, the thing that he does here is really put, put out, an example of what he's talking about. He names a pedagogy in this chapter, right? He names a way of teaching. Um, and I think that's, that's powerful. And I like it. Yeah. I think anytime you can like name your own pedagogy, that right there just makes you a superhero, right? Like, and you, you name things all the time, Scott, like you're, but problem tunity, problem tunity, yeah. pandemification, but have you named yeah. the pedagogy? No, sir. You no, have not. I have not. Yeah. So there Which you go. Why, why I remain mired in mediocrity. Right. Here it is. But, well, and that's why Brian Brown is a superhero and you, yeah. my friend, are not. And yeah. neither am I. I'm not a superhero yeah. either. No, thank, uh, thank you for dragging me down into the mud with you. I appreciate it. <laughs> so let, let's, let, let's, let's kind of get to the pedagogy talks about. And, um, but I think that maybe we should take a step back to talk about this whole idea of this, like this generative nature that he talks yeah. about in terms of how we acquire language and how we, and this is all like steeped in that situated cognition stuff that you and I just love and sink our teeth into. Right. right. And this is that, you know, learning and language are tied together by the experiences that we're in. And so the things we do, this, this experiences that we're, you know, situated in, that's where we build languages, language and terminology from. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. And it's, it's critical. And so, and I think that the really important part is he talks about like these four sort of assumptions that we should have when we're working with, you know, with students in, in science. And he says, and I don't know, should we go all through four, four of these? I guess so. This is on 44 and 45. Yeah. Oh, it should be 64 and 65. Yeah. Well, wait, you, actually, let's do that. But I do want to touch on this generative thing, because that's where my first sticky note is in the book. Right. Uh, or in this chapter, which is on page 60, where he talks about, um, you know, how questions are generative. And I think this is such an important thing. And it's so difficult, I think, um, for teachers of science to understand, because we talk a lot about asking questions in science. Um, and we talk about teachers asking questions. And we in, in this podcast have talked about things like IRE and these sort of patterns of questioning that typically happen in classrooms. And I think, he, you know, his point here about a question being generative. So the, the, that idea that that is a purpose for a question that you really want to aim for. You want questions to be generative, which is to say that they, they produce, they generate something um, genuine in the classroom as opposed to being, again, like IRE. It's another way to characterize this sort of um, kind discourse. of discourse that we were aiming for when we think right. about science teaching. Yeah, that the discourse is, is creating sort of like giving us information for as teachers, right? And helping to build this, this 
conversation, this discourse that's happening in our classroom that we can draw upon, that can feed into the conversation. And it's not just like parroting back terminology that we put out there that students may not know or fully understand and may not connect to the, their own experiences, their own terminologies, their own ways of thinking and understanding the world. Yeah. yeah, it gives them an opportunity to, it, it creates, one of the things it generates is opportunities for students to, to use their agency productively in class, right? So you're opening an opportunity for them to say, here's a place where I can be, be an active part of this classroom in a productive way, right? So I think that's what we're talking about. Um, and what he's talking about is, is this idea is, you know, really, you want kids to feel like this is their community and that, and part of that is done through what you're talking about, um, Holly, when you're talking about like you drawing on your own experiences, using your own language, but, but that it had, it all is started by the way that the teacher frames these questions that they're asking uh, their students. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's a good thing to springboard into these sort of four, you know, assumptions about teaching science that are related to language. It says uh, one uh, learning the language of science requires the student to simultaneously learn new words and new ideas. So that's like pretty critical. And I think that's probably like, you know, you're hearing that and you're going, well, yeah, duh, like, of course, mm -hmm. you know, but it like put it, framing it that way, I think is, is pretty important because it's like, okay, we're not just learning new ideas. We're also learning a whole new language. And these two things are interconnected. Um, well, wait, before you go on, and, and the critical piece about that, maybe you were about to talk about this, so maybe God, I, I, jumped, I jumped on you there. Um, but the, but he used, he, what he's contrasting that to is when you're learning language, right? right. When, so when you're learning language, you know the idea, you're just learning a new word for it. But his point here is that in science, you're learning the idea and the word for it together, and that is very difficult. It, it ups the complexity of the task. Uh, over just learning the new word um, when you yeah, it's not know just about thing. replacing it's not like okay you know a book is this in english so the book in spanish or the book in french or whatever right. so it's not just about replacing it's like you're under you're like developing new ideas and also terminologies for those ideas in a lot of cases and and that's that's hard work and that requires some intentionality um then jumping down later he says the second assumption is that the language of science has a number of alternative and colloquial terms that have multiple meanings in students' lives. So that's an assumption. It's like, okay, you may use this term, but it may not be the way students may be hearing it differently because of their own lives. And then it goes on. Students may have conceptual understanding that does not rely on scientific terminology. And I think this is the great way of, like we talked about this in another episode about this whole misconceptions, alternative conceptions. He just says conceptual understanding. He just like, he doesn't call it anything except for like, they have an understanding mm -hmm. that is out there and it might not rely or connect to scientific terminology at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and that, and that is a building block, right? So that, that gets you this thing about, um, well, if they know the idea and what you're helping them do is find a new word for it, that's a very different task than they have to learn the idea and the word. So, he, so what he's trying to communicate here, I think, is that students have these conceptual resources that we can draw on that will make this task 
easier as well, that we also can, as teachers, take advantage of this opportunity, um, but only if we are able to listen to kids talk about their ideas in their own words and understand them, right? And that's, that's what the first three chapters are about, is recognizing that kids have these conceptual uh, tools that they bring with them to the classroom. Yeah, and I, th I think that the fourth assumption that he talks about is the one that I think is like the one that I, I spent a lot of time thinking about because I was like, I, I guess I never really, the only time I'd really like thought about it was like when, you know, my, my background, my research was in, the, I did phenomenological research. And when you talk about phenomena, it's just hide, when you have a phenomenon, you try to describe that and put it into words, it's really hard to translate from the phenomenon and put the words on the phenomenon, right, mm -hmm. to describe that. And, and so he does that. He does some sort of phenomenological type of stuff here in this fourth assumption. So science language involves multiple representations, including new words, new graphical depictions, new symbol systems, and mathematical representations of science concepts. This is all this big, huge, massive mess. And he uses this earlier in the chapter when he talks about like if you're going to describe like a, a kid wearing a blue shirt down running down the road dribbling a ball right like we can in, visualize that in our head right we can have that image in our head that concept in our head and it's not like it's almost by putting words on it we take that and separate that concept that that visualization into separate parts. And it's really hard because sometimes those pieces don't add up to the way we see it in our brains. Right. And, and I think that's, and that's right from Vygotsky, right? Like yes. That, that is. example is Vygotsky's example, which is to say that we don't think in words, like right. we don't think in complete sentences and that, you know, um, there's all sorts of examples of this, but certainly one of the ones um, that, that comes up a lot in graduate school contexts um, and came up in my class today, not in a graduate, but an undergraduate context is this idea of like different kinds of writing. So writing to think versus writing to communicate. And one of the reasons you write to think, which is to say, get your ideas out onto paper is because in your head, they make sense. You, you sort of are looking at them and visualizing them and saying, yeah, I got this. I understand this thing. But when you try to articulate it into words, you have to transform it. And this is what he's saying is, and what you just described, right, is you have to take this sort of complex thing that you can visualize in your head and break it down into words. And the process of doing that is actually a lot more difficult than we usually recognize. So this is why writing, I think, is such a hard task, but it's, but it's also um, why it's so important, right? But, um, but this idea that we don't just think, like, it's not like text, running text, right. uh, like a teleprompter in our head, like, that's not how our, how our brains work. Yeah, and I will say that was one of the things that I picked up in my, my work with you when I was your, you know, your student was this right to think that. Yeah, when I was that one way back in the day. So glad uh, you don't have that little braid anymore. That was yeah, weird it, time. it wasn't a good look for me. Um, no. But I, is that, that writing to think? Because there were times where I just was like wanted to talk about it. And it was like, no, 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 put it on paper. And then the, the, the effort of trying to find the right words to describe the things that are going on in your head is is a lot of work and it's hard work but um it's an not an effort for not right like you you come out better on the other side having thought about the words and the best way to describe those things and i think you know that isn't it sort of it, it 
it's all in this fourth assumption is that this yeah. is all together. It's all there. And that, you know, the science, it's going to involve representation with words and, you know, graphical depictions and symbols and all of that stuff. And sure. that, and that we have to be, you know, intentional on how we do this and how we sort of like scaffold students through this. And I think that's the whole pedagogy that Brian is presenting. Yeah. And, and, and just one other thing before we get to sort of naming his named pedagogy here um, is, is that idea that science is really multi-representational and it's another part of the complexity of the learning the language of science, right? So science isn't just the terminology and the definitions. It's also, as he say, there, as he says in here, and as we were just talking about this sort of mathematization of it, right? So turning these things into math, into graphs, into charts, into models that are represented externally in all sorts of different ways. Um, and I'm not saying that's not done in other disciplines, but it's so central the way that science get practiced that, that you have to understand that. that and, and it goes back to this other question about like, what should students be doing in class? They should be doing multiple representations. They shouldn't only be doing one kind of thing because science isn't just one kind of representation. It's lots of different kinds. So what you're saying is more free body diagrams. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I think really all they should be doing is free body diagrams. Right. I, mean, so I, I mean, until they get them right. And then, right. And then, then we give them more. Yeah. But, and then, then, then we give them more complicated ones. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I thought yeah. I heard you say. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I, well, that's what I held up on the piece of paper in front of it. Like I, I used my mouth words to say one thing, but then I held up a piece <laughs> of paper and said, what free I really mean is body. more free body diagrams. Right. I got it. So, do, got so, so do you want to, you want to name Brian's pedagogy here? I feel like we should have word? like a drum roll or something like, or like, you know, yeah. have some, we'll, we'll have our, uh, we'll have our editor. Yeah. Add some, you know, we'll, we'll mark at this time point that he needs to put in a little like, yeah, we're probably okay. not, or we need no. some drops. We need to start getting drops. There in here. That's, that, Cause that's, that's what all really, the cool podcasts do. That's <laughs> what's going to bring this, this to <laughs> yes. the next level is some, next level. you know, drops. Yeah. yeah. So okay. it's called uh, the disaggregate instruction pedagogy. I think he, yeah. like, I understand the name. I understand why he named it, but, uh, you know. You feeling like it's a little redundant? Yeah. Instruction pedagogy thing or yeah. what's, what's your beef? What, let, well, let's, yeah. I think the let's instruction and pedagogy, it's like, come on. Yeah. And I also like the acronym DIP. Come Oof. on. I know. All right, Brian, we're giving you some notes. Yeah. We'll them over. Dip. Yeah. Dip. The dip. The dip. But, but so here, the key thing, right? The key thing about dip. The key thing that... The, the, <laughs> he doesn't call it dip in the book. That Just to be clear, in, there is no dip. Dipping. He does not ever refer to it I think, as i think he i think we're gonna just we're gonna retcon that and we're gonna say yes he actually does refer to it as yeah so um so the the big thing that that he's trying to argue for here is separating learning the idea and learning the language right yeah. he's saying that's where the disaggregation is is taking apart pedagogically taking it apart for kids so that they're only doing one or the other, not doing both of them simultaneously. And, you know, there's a simple logic to this, which is by doing that, you reduce how hard it is to learn. Right. And, and so you're scaffolding them in learning. So, um, so then, you know, the rest of the chapter is about giving you what this actually looks like by, um, 
by laying it out in an experiment. But I don't know. Do you want to talk through the, the four phases here? Yeah, I, well, I think we should do a little bit of that because I think the, the, the critical first step for me, this whole pre-assessment thing is so important. I think it's like the, like the most important part of this is that is stage one, right? That phase one piece. Because in that, you learn the language of, of the students. You understand where they are coming from. And, and then you use that to sort of like teach the concepts, and teach the ideas. And so he, the example he provides is, you know, oxygen and, and carbon dioxide and how uh, the students in, in the example were using uh, good air and bad air, that good air is the stuff that we breathe and bad air is the stuff we breathe out. And so using that, like you could teach the concepts from that, like you could teach the concepts specifically around photosynthesis, which was the, mm -hmm. the unit he was building on. And, you know, he's a biology guy and we're not going to hold that against him. Um, but, you know, not right now, anyway. not right now. And so he uses the, this idea of good air and bad air to develop the concepts and the understanding of photosynthesis before like really bringing in the the, the terms of oxygen or chlorophyll or carbon dioxide or all the other things and glucose and all of these, you know, big terms that would be challenging for students. And then he just uses their terms to help build the concepts. And then later he more intentionally does the, the language development because the concept's already there. So, yeah. And I think that's the, that's the part I, to me is the the critical part is like understanding where the students are understanding their language and then from there using that in the instruction from that point forward so you know he talks about that phase two as being the everyday content construction so he's saying well, wait, one, one second before we get to phase two i want to say right. one thing about phase one sorry um because one of the things about phase one that that i want to make a connection to is is ambitious science teaching so so that that sort of broader framework is the way that um you know we think about science teaching and and so one of the key pieces of ambitious science teaching is their version of this of this pre-assessment is kids generating their initial model so when you're when you're starting a unit you start with a phenomenon and the first thing you do is you give kids either data or uh, uh, something for them to observe or whatever. And then you ask them to develop their own explanation. And one of the key parts of that in ambitious science teaching is to push on their language so that they are using their own language that they understand, not throwing out a bunch of technical terms that they've sure. heard from some other class or whatever. And so it's, for me, it's the same thing. It's this idea of like, we, you understand things that you explain in words that you understand. So we want to keep you talking about your own experiences in your own words and using that as the foundation for your initial explanation. And not only does it give the teacher formative assessment, and feedback the way that you're describing. It also forces the kids, here it is again, like writing to think. They are getting their ideas out of their head onto paper, observable, so that these ideas are externalized and can be examined and can be thought through in more in more clarity. So you're right, this pre-assessment thing is super important. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a good point because that is the the part of this where he talks about he, it's a lot of language. He is very focused on the language that students are using and the language we use. But the conceptual understanding is the critical part too, is what are the students' current conceptual understanding? Like, well, how are they making sense of this? And that's critical information for us too, yeah. uh, for us to build upon and draw upon as we go forward with our explanations. And that's one of the parts that he doesn't, I'm sure he in, 
intends to address or he may address, but he doesn't in the in the in his presentation of the dip. Um, yeah. And and so so that's that's how we transition into phase two, which is sort of what I, what I really just said in some yeah. sense, because that's really like phase two is the everyday content uh, construction, and that's this letting kids talk through their ideas using their language, right? So that it's, that it's about the idea and trying to help them think about the idea. And this is where if kids are saying, hey, we breathe in the good air and breathe out the bad air, this is not the time to say, oh, well, that good air is called this and the bad right. air is called that. It's about just helping them develop this understanding. And I think the other part with that is, is how we frame those, those questions and those conversations with students. And it's not like the multiple choice or fill in the blanks. It's like, okay, if you were going to teach this to your little brother, what would you, how would you explain photosynthesis to your little brother or, or something that's a little more authentic for the students to try to get them to use their terminology in a, and I think the example he provides later to like to assess students understanding is like, okay, you're stopped on the street to by someone interviewing you about like global warming or something, or, Oh, actually about cutting down trees in the rainforest. Mm -hmm. um, how would you tell them that was a, a, good, a good or bad idea? And, and to use some of the terminology that we've discussed. So like doing something like that early on to try to, you know, okay. So how would you explain this to your, your little brother? Your little sister, I think is, is much more of an authentic task for them. And it's much more, you know, uh, you know, the ability to, that, that generative piece, right? It's like, mm -hmm. that's the critical part is getting them to talk science in a place or space that would be more authentic to them. Right. Right. And so then, so then the next phase, which is phase three is, is where he, and this is the disaggregated part, right? So now we've done the first part of it. Right. The second part of it is explicit language instruction. So this is where you start introducing that normative science vocabulary, where you can start talking and helping them understand like, okay, these things that you were talking about as energy pouches, they have a name in science. We call them these, these chloroplasts, right? So they, the, the, and, and so, so starting to help them understand that, there are names, there are sort of official names for these things that are scientific language. Um, and that that's an important phase, transitioning these ideas into these, into this normative terminology. I gotta say, I like energy pouch. Kind energy of pouch than, is pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty strong. Yeah. Yeah. I was the, uh, yeah, the ordinary language, every, everyday language is like, hey, you've got a great energy pouch right there. <laughs> yes. Like, nope. No, thank you. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that went that went a different direction, Scott. But <laughs> well, I, I think you, you know, there's no one to blame but you for that one, Ollie. Uh, and yes. then moving on quickly <laughs> to to phase four is the scaffolding opportunities for discourse. So, um, so really, I mean, I think this, you know, I'm going to connect this back again to AST because I think for me this is the way that I sort of see this. Of course, that's my lens for thinking about it, but you know, at the end, one of the things you ask kids to do is go back to their explanation and this time try and use the normative science language yeah. to explain those things because they need to practice it. They, you know, in the same way that you need to practice any foreign language, right? So you've got the idea, you've now mapped this new term onto the idea, but you still need to work through how do you talk about these things? And so providing opportunities for kids to engage in discourse using this new language that they've used but hopefully grounded in, in these concepts that they understand. And I, I, 
the part where at the end he wraps this after he outlines these four stages of the the disaggregate instruction pedagogy dip, as we, dip as we call it dip um he connects it back to another you know idea that is uh, you and i are big fans of this whole idea of cognitive apprenticeships and i think that's you know sort of what we would want our classrooms to to be is is you know and that's very vygotsky too and that's where you know sort of our our wheelhouse but it's yep. good that like kind of tips his hat to that and it's like well, well. he does yeah. yeah yeah for sure and yeah and uh, you know that that article um i think we've talked about it before but that article by brown collins to do good that um situated situated learning uh no i always get this wrong situated cognition and the culture of learning boy got it took took me a few three claps yeah but cognitive apprenticeship is not in the title but it is the thing that they're talking about and um and fundamentally you know well first of all we talk about that article um too in in my classes because I talk about how many times it's been cited, which is last time I checked, I think somewhere around 18,000, which is just a crazy amount of citations. Like most people won't get that many citations in their whole life for every paper they write combined. And these guys got it for one paper. I mean, it's a really, really important paper. Um, But I think fundamentally what it does talk about is this idea of like, you're trying to help kids learn through authentic practice. This is, the, this is what situated means. Situated means that if you learn and talk about ideas in a context that is very schooly, then, then um, you, you'll, you'll not be able to use it in other places. That knowledge will not right. be it's productive school. and useful. It's school. Yeah. That's the culture you learned it in. That's the culture you, it works in. And so, so this idea of what you're really trying to do in a science classroom is create a culture that's more authentically like science. Yeah. So. so the end of the chapter is where he jumps into this whole does dip work? Is it diptastic? Spoiler. Is it? It does. It yeah, does work. It, it's it's diptastic. It is fantastic. It, oh it works. No. I know. I'm not even recognizing I'm, that you said that word. I, I said it twice because it's going to catch on. I didn't, I didn't hear it either time. Yeah. It's, I know they're, I know you're saying words, but I'm just. <laughs> well, yeah, I, so, you can make up words. I shall make up words too. Well, it, it, then make them good words. Like that was a terrible, t- that was an abomination. No, I hear people right word. now using it. I hear it. No. Yeah. Our listeners. So this is what he does. And this is where I think the in-between stuff comes in is he creates. So he, they, he and a colleague were originally going to create sort of like the setting where, you know, some teachers were going to teach this disaggregated, disaggregate instruction pedagogy. And then, uh, then they were going to have some other folks who are going to do it more traditionally. And so basically this is, okay, pre-assessment, uh, teach the concept, do the language, and then, you know, apply. And uh, they found that it would be really hard to do this in some sort of, you know, experimental way and so what they decided to do was to do this through you know computer-based instruction so he created two different computer-based systems and he had a control which taught it very much like we would teach in a normal classroom Mm -hmm. a normal science classroom we're teaching the science and the language at the same time so teaching concepts around photosynthesis and using terms like oxygen and glucose and all the other things that you would teach and teaching them together and then he had this other one the other computer-based uh, instruction was around, okay, first pre-assessment, then using all that, te- that their terminology from the students to talk about things like the good air and the bad air, and then developing the, the, the actual con- 
conceptual understanding. And then after that, teaching, intentionally teaching the, the language, the terminology that science uses in that. And then they looked at it from a bunch of different perspectives in terms of, you know, uh, were, were, were students, did they understand the science? Did they understand the terminology? Were they able to use the terminology in authentic ways? And so in all of the measures, in all of the, the ways they assessed it, um, the disaggregate instruction pedagogy, dip, uh, worked was more effective. <laughs> it will not work. You are not going to beat me into it. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it, I had you. I thought no, you were going to say it. No, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't think for a second. Um, so uh, yeah. So I mean, I think he. It's and and it's profoundly um, impactful, right? And it and and in particular on the open-ended questions, which are like the hard ones where kids yeah. have to actually explain ideas. Like there's, there's a huge effect size, um, uh, basically a standard deviation uh, effect size, which is, you know. Uh, nothing a, to sneeze at. Nothing to sneeze at, right? So in a, in, a, uh, in, a, in a graded environment, that's a full letter grade difference, right? So it's the difference between in a, in a curved letter grade environment, right? So, so a standard deviation would mean the difference between a C and a B or a B and an A. And that's a big difference in learning, especially when you're talking across um, whole classes, right? So the whole class having that kind of effect size, it's um, so it's, you know, so the, so the, the truth is that it's, that it's really effective. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I love about this study, um, and it, just to be clear, it's a 2008 paper. Um, so, and it's in the Journal of Research and Science Teaching. So if you want to, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes, but, but you can seek out the original study and take a look at it. He actually puts the bulk of the, at least the data and the analysis stuff in here. But, yep. um, but I, I've known about this study because it's been out for a while. And it's one of the ways I think about justifying some of the work that we do that I've also talked about on this podcast, which is about um, this work work about en the energy unit where the kids invent their own language, right? So we do this this unit with, it's called the happy sad ball. And one of the things that the kids do as part of this is they make their own name for this stuff initially. So they call it BAM or they call it SHABAM or they or uh, oomph. Like, and so, so the idea is like initially they're just talking about the ideas and the, the academic language comes later. So I'm, I'm doing disaggregate instruction. I've not called it that. Um, but, but that's the way that we think about it too. So this is an empirical uh, support for the idea that really what you want to do is help kids develop the concepts and then later help them layer on the academic language. I think for me, the thing that resonates the most is that it is a radical departure from science instruction without it being that radical, right? This is like really something impactful, but it just involves maybe teaching things a little differently with, and, and, and doing it with, you know, more scaffolding, more knowing what to do first and what to do last. Right. And, and involving students in discourse and using their discourse and using their terms to help build concepts. And then, and then after building the concepts, then it, applying the language. And I, right, but, that's but pretty radical. I, it is. But, but you and I both know that um, like, and academics get caught up in this 
the sort of hair splitting stuff all the time about, well, it's distinction between we're talking about this versus that, you know, like we're really good at splitting hairs. I think, you know, in this, in this case, it is a small shift on, on some level, but it is also a, a complete overturning of it. In, right. and, and so to your point, yeah, it is radical. Um, and it also is a lot harder, right? So it, it, on some level, it sounds really easy. Okay, well, first you just have the kids talking yeah. their own words about the concept, and then you layer the language in later and teach it to them. Well, yeah, it's a lot more complicated than that. Right, so, I don't mean to dismiss it. And I, no, I, don't, I know I, you. And I'm I not didn't. at all. Yeah, and it's... Uh, I, so much of this is around creating a culture in your classroom where this kind of thing can happen. And that is, you know, hard, hard work. It is hard, hard work. Hard. Yeah. And, and that's something he doesn't address in this, in this chapter at all, but it's something that I think is, is pretty critical to the whole process is you have to develop a culture in which this is okay, where right. students can talk, talk, in their own language, and then you're using it as, and, and I think we, we've talked about this in earlier episodes where you, it's not the, hey, you're wrong, or that's a stupid idea, or mm -hmm. why would you say that? You know, why would you call it that? Um, right. Like if somebody says this is, you know, it's bad air. Well, why would you call it that? That's not air at all. You know, air is actually right. a bunch of gases. Air is made uh, up of all these different uh, gases. Right. It's, and, it's and mostly you, nigrogen. Uh, that's, that's great. Yeah. No, rum, rum, rum. <laughs> that, that's, that's what old science people do, right? Yeah, old science. They harumph, they harumph a lot. Yeah, yeah, that is. And it, it's about creating a culture, which is a lot harder work. And, and I think that's the part that, you know, my hope is as we move forward in the book, maybe he talks about some of that stuff and, and maybe he doesn't. And if not, then gives then us the opportunity. Then we'll talk about it here. And so that's chapter four in a nutshell. Right. And I think that yeah. there's a, and I think we need to come up with a better acronym than, because I like the, what you call it, AST for the ambitious science teaching. That's great. Yeah. I, I'm an yeah. acronym guy, a AST. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the, the DIP, the DIP, Not, I don't yeah. think so. Are you, a, are you, um, so that I, I said in an earlier episode that we're, ga we're big game players at the house. And so I don't know if you ever played exploding Kit kittens. Have, do you know this ga game? So there, there's a new one that just came out and, you know, we got it for the holidays and I have to say it's, it's like exploding kittens, but it's, it's called poetry from Neanderthals. So nice. it, it is, like and uh, it is very interesting because what it is, it's a game in which it's kind of like other games, like, like taboo, where you're trying to get someone to say a word and you're trying to give them clues. And there's a list of things you can't say, you know, like, and so you're like, okay, uh, uh, it's like, if you want to get someone to say mashed potatoes, uh, it's, it's white, it's, and you can't say these things, right? Well, it's like that, except for there's two big differences. One, uh, you can only say one syllable words. So you couldn't say like whipped because that's more, you could say whites if you're trying to do mashed potatoes. Uh, so you can only do one syllable word. So that's where the Neanderthal comes in. It's like, you know, lots of, you know, grunting one syllable sounds. The second part is- Wait, is there actual grunting or you're saying no more sort of just metaphorical grunting? More metaphorical one syllable, you know, yeah. word. Okay. grunts kind of thing and so in taboo you know whenever somebody says the word that they're not supposed to say right you you go there's a little buzzer um there's no buzzer here the instead there's an inflatable club that you <laughs> hit the person over the head wow with. <laughs> wow that is aggressive 
It is. Right. It is aggressive. And uh, <laughs> Look it is how much joy it brings you. <laughs> it is so much fun. It is awesome. So uh, Neanderthal for du- dummies, or actually not Neanderthal for dummies. <laughs> no, that's Poetry, a whole different thing. Different thing completely. Poetry for Neanderthals. Poetry uh, for Neanderthal dummies. Yes, yes. So there you go. That's the joy. Wow, that was good joy. I liked yeah. it. I, yeah. I just liked listening to you talk about it. <laughs> the inflatable club is a thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we could like, use that. We could institute that in, in the podcast. <laughs> I don't think it would work long distance. You'd have to hit yourself. Uh, we'd have to get like people to help us. <laughs> When they get when they go esoteric, hit them in the head. Hit hit them with the inflatable club. Yes. Oh, well, uh, I have nothing uh, quite as glorious as poetry for Neanderthals. I have to admit. But uh, so it, in in my vein of returning to science fiction books of my youth, I have ret- <laughs> I have returned I have returned to another uh, series that I loved uh, as a kid, which was Isaac Asimov's Robot series. Um, so I, I am rereading the, I'm in, well, I'm going to reread the whole trilogy, I think, but I have, I'm I'm about three quarters of the way through Caves of Steel, which is the initial one, um, with Lige Bailey and R. Daniel Olivar, who's the robot guy, right? So, um, so the basic premise of this, it's basically a detective story, but the premise is that um, there, this, uh, there's, this is far in the future. Cities are these massive caves of steel. Like the people that live in cities do not see the outdoor air at all ever. Like they're totally enclosed their whole lives. And then there's these other people that live on the outer worlds that are called spacers. And they have a really heavy robot culture. And one of them gets murdered um, and what happens is that they have to investigate this murder and they pair somebody who's from the city, who's this Lige Bailey fellow, uh, with this super realistic looking robot, who's the R. Daniel um, Olivar, and the R stands for robot. So, um, so it's, it's a, you know, a detective thriller in a traditional sense, but then it has this twist of being about a man and a robot working together and trying to figure that out. Did they make a movie of that? Um, yes. So unfortunately they made a movie of that, that that does not resemble in any way, the actual, um, store. Well, I shouldn't say in any way, but, um, it has, um, was it Will Smith? Yeah, it's Will Smith. And it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not a a great piece of art and it's like robots swarming all over. And he, he's, it's sort of like a zombie movie with robots is my sense of what it was like. So don't see that. Go back and read the book by Isaac Asimov. It's a See, class. I thought you were going to go with the Foundation series. I, th- I that, like. Well, I, I've I've already read that one, so it's not currently yeah. bringing me joy. I just just recently brought me joy when I read. Ah, uh, yeah, I I read a bunch of those books way back in the day. Maybe that's something I'll dig up too. Well, Foundation is coming out as a movie. It's, oh, really? It'll be interesting to see how they translate that into a movie because it is it's about guys that write an encyclopedia. So you you do have to wonder like how's that going to translate into a sure. movie? But we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. It's coming. Well, that's a lot to be joyful for right there. Amen. Let's uh, go out and club ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks for being here. And this is Ollie and I'm Scott. And this is Science in Between. See you. We'll see you in between. See you then. <laughs>